those of you that have joined us. Theologians would speak often in times gone by about union and communion. Union and communion. I've spoken in months gone by, recent weeks, about our union with Christ and how our union with Christ is something that is that we lay hold of in the fullest expression when we trust in Jesus. And yet our union with Christ is something that was ours before time. We were eternally loved. The believer was eternally loved. And then down through time as we are made regenerate by God's love, when the love of God is shed abroad in our heart, given eyes to see, we then place our faith, our trust in Jesus, and we lay hold of our union with Christ. Ours, that which was ours in eternity past, is now made truly ours in, by faith, by trust. And that's our union. That's fixed. When we place our trust in Jesus, we come into possession of all that He possesses. Everything that is the Son's then becomes ours. We are endowed with and showered with all the spiritual blessings, all the saving benefits that Christ purchased for us upon the cross. And we're given everything pertaining to life and godliness at that time. That's a real privilege. That's something that only we possess. The world doesn't possess that. The world has no idea about what we possess, uh, why we uh, do what we do, why we believe that uh, the assembly of the saints is the greatest manifestation of the glory of God here on earth at this present time. That's our union. Then this communion. That's a little different than union. Union is fixed, eternally secure, adopted in. God orphans out none of his children. Our union is fixed. Our communion ebbs and flows. Meaning that our, the Spirit of God, of which we have in the fullest measure, of which we can't get any more of, the Spirit has all of us, Sorry, the Spirit is uh, filled us. We can't have any more of the Spirit, but He can have more of us, if you will. As we give more and more of our life given over in worship and service to Him, out of adoration for Him. And that's a little bit about what communion is. Communion ebbs and flows. We can grieve the Spirit. We can quench the Spirit. We can be walking filled by the Spirit, but our communion ebbs and flows. And what I want to talk about today is a little message that I've entitled, Run to Jesus. I thought, being the first time in 41 years, that there's been a, that we've, we haven't had sports camp, I thought a little one-off message might do us well. It's a good time to run to Jesus. It's always a good time to run to Jesus. And running to Jesus ensures that our communion is rich and full. We will always stumble and trip, we'll always fail, 
And yet God, by his grace, gives us those means of grace that gives us stabilizing grace, spiritual stamina, and the ability to run this race with endurance. You'll be mindful that the author of Hebrews tells believers who are suffering on the eve of great suffering, tells them you are in need of endurance. And I think the church of Jesus Christ here in New Zealand is in need of endurance. I know I am, and I know that you are as well. And so how can we fire up and ensure that our communion is rich and deep in a time that we find ourselves living in? Well, I think the key to that is to run to Jesus. And this morning, I want us to look at four ways we do that. How do we run to Jesus as believers? I mean, we've ran to him to be saved. And because he's the good and kind shepherd, he has saved us. That's union. But how do we run to Jesus in our day-to-day life? That's communion. Four ways. The first one I want us to look at this morning is that we need to run to his people. If we're going to maintain communion with God, that communion is not hindered by our own pride, by our own self-love, by finding satisfaction in the wrong source. But if our communion, if we're being filled up with the love of God, and then the result of that is to love him and love neighbor, which is our church family and our wider community, we need to be making use of the means that it is to run to his people. And so I want us to go through a number of passages this morning. I just kind of want to talk to you and lay what's on my heart regarding this. I think the Lord ever shows us that he is uh, expressing his love to his people through uh, all that happens on a Lord's Day service. We come, we sing, God's pouring out grace. We come, we pray, God's pouring out grace. We come, we give, God's pouring out grace. We come, we partake of the Lord's table, God's pouring out grace. Sustaining grace, not saving grace. And as we sit under the word of God, God's expressing his love to us and pouring out more stabilizing grace. And so a number of passages of scripture that I want us to consider, you may get a little uh, Tired from going from passage to passage, this won't be normally where we're in a couple of passages with a few with a few cross references on a regular Sunday as we go through the Gospel of John. But this morning we'll go through a number of passages. And so the first place under this heading, run to His people, which is if we're going to run to Jesus in our communion, we need to run to His people. And so I want you to turn with me to Acts chapter two as we begin. Acts chapter two. Very familiar passage of scripture here in Acts chapter 2. If you look at verse 41. Obviously in Acts chapter 2 we see the birth of the church. We're a long way down the road today here on this Lord's Day. But here's the very birth of the church. Some 2,000 years ago. So then, those who had received his word were baptized. Peter had been preaching. 
they received the word, they believed. They were then baptized. And that day, there were added to the church about 3,000 souls. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. As a result of that, everyone kept feeling a sense of awe. Many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. The apostolic era was in full swing here. We're post that apostolic era. But I tell you what, we're not post. We're not post. Verse 41, the, verse 42, the, the teaching of sound doctrine to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayer. Those are the exclusive primary means by which God gives His people endurance, grace. The apostles' teaching is the doctrine. The fellowship is what we're doing now. The breaking of bread. And then prayer. These people were gathered. This is the very beginning. You look at verse uh, 44. All these had, who had believed were together. They had all things in common. They shared common convictions, they had common affections. Verse 45, they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. And then verse 46, day by day they were continuing with one mind in the temple. They were still in the temple, they were going there every day. By the time you get to the book of Acts, the church meets when? On the first day of the week, on the Lord's day. The Lord's day because this is the day where the Lord... Jesus resurrected, and from that moment on through to now, which is why we gather and assemble on the Lord's Day. But they were together. They were together from the beginning. The church has always been together, and the church continues to be together. We must run to His people. We must run to His people. The next place I want you to turn is Hebrews chapter 10, as we build upon that foundation there. Hebrews chapter 10. The church was birthed in the book of Acts. The church was established in the book of Acts. Here in Hebrews, we read a letter to a scattered church, a suffering church. And then in verse 19 of Hebrews 10, after all the theological truth that's been unfolded from Hebrews chapter 1 all the way through, the, all the riches of truths about Christ being Better, Christ being a better sacrifice, and Christ being uh, the final fulfillment of sacrifice. You now have in verse 19 the application of the entire book of Hebrews. So if you were to read all 10 chapters of Hebrews, you're sucking in and enduring in a good way, you're digesting all the rich theological truth about Christ and how He is supreme, you then get to verse 19, and this is 
the practical application of the theology. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, there's a confidence because you've just had it explained to you that no longer is there need of daily going to the temple. The priest no longer has to date. There's entire confidence that full forgiveness of sin takes place through Jesus. It takes place, look, in verse 20, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh. Since we have a great high priest over the house of God, here it is. Let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. Further application, let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. That's the application of the book of Hebrews. And the book of Hebrews contains some of the deepest, richest Christology, doctrine of Christ, you'll read anywhere in the pages of Scripture. And the application, the very practical application is, have confidence, be fully assured, hold fast to the hope without wavering. We do that among God's people. We don't do that in an island, all alone. We don't do that isolated. We do that by running to His people. Back to Hebrews chapter 3 now, to show the severity of not doing this, or the byproduct, the result of not running to His people. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12. It says, Take care, brethren, that there not be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. That's a warning to believers. You say, well, can believers fall away from the living God? No. God adopts His children. God orphans none of His children. Salvation is a supernatural work of God. Our hearts cannot be radically changed and then we just jump the back fence. What this is saying is it's a warning, a very serious warning to me and to you as the children of God, the believers. We must take care that there not be found in any of us an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. But, verse 13 we are to encourage one another day after day, as long as it's still called today. And the purpose of that encouragement, the purpose to go beyond just talking about the garden and the weather and the grass and the house and the holiday, is so that none of you, church, will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And that's what the author's getting at in here in verse 12. That sin is so deceitful 
that it can overcome you. It's crouching. It's like a tiger, like a lion rather, seeking whom it may devour. And words to one another about the garden, the house, the beach, whatever it may be, they will not accomplish the preventative measure of the hardening of the deceitfulness of sin. But words about Christ, words about God's faithfulness, words about God's rule and reign, words about being diligent to keep it balanced, to be looking to the ant so as to not be a sluggard, and to be working and to be faithful and to take heed, but also to be looking to the sparrow from Matthew 6, that Jesus said, God the Father cares for this little one, how much more will he care for you? Encouraging one another with truth. Encouraging one another with praiseworthy things. I say all this because the world's going crazy. Our nation has lost the plot. There was a dark day the other day when our government said what they said. A very dark day. And so we need to be encouraging one another. You know, pastoring a church at this time is very difficult because there, is peop- there are people who are facing potential job loss. There are people who are not so fast. We all fit into different categories. Let's be mindful of one another. Don't be insensitive to one another. Let's encourage one another all the more so that none of us, wherever we find ourselves, is hardened by the deceitfulness of sin because we can all be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We must, to maintain our communion, to to ensure that our communion with God is in the fullest Because it can ebb and flow. If we cast aside spiritual matters, then our communion with God is not in the fullest sense. First way we do that is we run to His people and we encourage one another. Next thing we do to run to Jesus is we run to His power. We run to His people and we run to His power. I want you to turn with me to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. General Electric Power Company. I've spoken a little bit in recent days about how the theologians of old would speak of duplex gratia, just a Latin phrase for double graces, that we've been given Christ for pardon and Christ for power. We made mention of this recently, verse 29 of Colossians 1, the Apostle Paul speaking about the necessity in verse 28 to proclaim Jesus. I mean, that's really the necessity for my life and for your life is to proclaim Jesus. 
That is being pushed to the side more and more as the world pushes in more and more. And yes, we need to be doing due diligence. We need to be taking heed. But I tell you, we need to be proclaiming Jesus. Paul says that the task of a new covenant minister is to proclaim him and in proclaiming him to be admonishing every person and teaching every person with all wisdom so that we may present every person complete in Christ. At justification, every person is complete in Christ. Union. But there is more driving that must happen by God's grace for communion. Paul says we must labor and strive in verse 29 according to what? His power. His power which works mightily. Paul said within me, we can say within us, you can say within me. We've been given Christ for pardon, but we've also been given Christ for power. It's a power that comes to us as we run to his people. Because contained within running to his people is everything in Acts 2, the teaching of the sound doctrine, the fellowship with one another, the breaking of bread, the prayer. There's the encouraging one another. There's not forsaking the assembly. There's Hebrews chapter 3, so that we, don't, we are not hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Never underestimate how deceitful sin is in our own heart and mind, blinding us to things. We run to Christ's power. We must run to Christ's power. And I want to draw out for us this morning one example. There's many ways we can draw down from that which indwells us, Christ's power. But there's one very pertinent way I want to focus on this morning. I think it's something that we would do very well uh, to take a moment to look at. Matthew chapter 6 now. Told you I'd keep you busy. Matthew chapter 6. Run to his power. Many ways we do that, but here's one way. And I really think it's a chief way. Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse 9, Jesus used the word pray. This is one of the more challenging means of grace. Pray. I hear too many sermons burdening people about their lack of prayer. And kind of just do more better law kind of stuff when it comes to prayer. I think a great way for us to be motivated all the more to pray I need to pray more. I need to make, pray more with my wife, my children. I need to pray more in private. These are demanding days. We need to be praying. The disciples come to Jesus in Matthew 6. And they ask Him, how do we pray? Jesus says in verse 9, well, Pray then in this way. This is known from generation to generation as the Lord's Prayer. I don't want to break that 
But it's not the Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer is John chapter 17. This is the model prayer. Jesus, this was never made to be recited as a work of penance. There's nothing wrong with praying it. But this is a template. We know that. I want to walk through it a little bit. Jesus says, pray then in this way. Our Father. Our Father. First thing you think of there is adoption. Father. The privilege is ours to be adopted. God is our Father who is in heaven. Reigning and ruling over this world. The Psalms and Old Testament tell us that our Father is sovereign over every aspect of this world. That He made the sun, moon and the stars. Psalm 146 tells us that our Father is faithful to care for His children when they are bowed down. Psalm 146 verse 7. Psalm 146 verse 2 says that they are bowed down by princes. Unruly, oppressive princes. You know, we are under, I really believe we entered a new New Zealand on the 19th of October. And oppression and marginalization is on its way. Some of you will be significantly marginalized and oppressed by society. And take comfort that our Father, we read in Psalm 146, He specifically provides for those that are bowed down, oppressed by princes, wicked rulers. Comforting truths. Our Father. Jesus says next, hallowed be your name. That is, that God is holy. Altogether distinct. You would be mindful of the late R.C. Sproul, famous for the question uh, that he would ask his students. And you can hear the chalkboard, can't you? He would ask his students, what is more like God? Angels flying up and about in heaven? Or bacteria floating around in your toilet? And many people say, well, the angels floating around in heaven. And to which Dr. Sproul would say, neither one. Neither one. God is not like angels flying around in heaven. And God is obviously not like bacteria floating around in the toilet. God is altogether distinct. Altogether holy. Altogether separate. So we come with a posture to our Father who has adopted us in as children. As His children. So kind, so caring. So holy. We must always maintain a reverential fear of our Holy Father. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. Not the fear of COVID. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. Not the fear of a tyrannical government. But the fear of God. 
a holy God. Jesus continues on with the template. He says, your kingdom come. That is a fascinating and most remarkable statement. Your kingdom come. The, the longing for the Messiah, the Son, the eternal Son sent from the love of the Father, who came down in His first coming to seek and save that which was lost, who will return in His second coming and literally place His feet on the Mount of Olives and rule and reign. Kingdom come. Your will be done, Jesus says. Debated point, your will be done. Is this talking about the decretive will of God, that God is sovereign over all things? Or is it talking about the perceptive will of God, the the commands that He gives us as His people? Either way, Jesus is saying that that we must pray that God's will is done here on earth, connects it to on earth, as it is in heaven. There is the longing, Jesus wants the longing of the believer to come as a child of God, acknowledging a holy father. That there is this longing for the establishing of messianic kingdom. The the theme of the kingdom of God is a central theme that runs through all of scripture. We, We can never ignore that we are kingdom citizens now. Awaiting the full realization of the kingdom to come. Jesus is reigning now. And yet in the consummation of all things, he will establish his kingdom in its fullest realization. We must therefore then live now with the marks of citizens of a coming kingdom. That's easy to say. You know, within your own flesh, that's not hard to do. I mean, that's hard to do. That's why it's important to run to his people and run to his power. Run to his people and run to his power. It gets harder when the world takes the trajectory that it's taking at the moment. But we must maintain the marks of a citizen of a coming kingdom. We are not of this world. We have no lasting city. But we are truly seeking the city which is to come. Ask the Lord to help you wrestle through that deeply in your own heart and mind. Which city are you seeking? Jesus continues in this prayer, give us this day our daily bread. I love the, I love the limitation on this. It's not give us this day our job and house. and There's a, there's a limitation on, on this in the sense it's not a grandioso request. It's just, it's just give me what I need for this day. Give me what I need for this day. We need to be praying for our daily needs. Our Father wants us to be like children, little children, in spirit, not maturity, 
He wants us to grow to maturity, but in our disposition towards Him to come and have display a self-reliance. My daughter asked me last night, Daddy, why do we have to pray to God? Uh, one of my young, young daughters, why do we have to pray to God if, if God the Father knows everything we need? It's a good question. They're trying to stump the chump. That's not hard. But the answer really is to, 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 to display a dependence. You know, we, we display our love for God by our need for God. Our love for God is displayed by our neediness. We love ourselves when we are self-reliant. When we don't display any neediness, we're displaying that we don't love God. We love ourselves. We think we're in control of all things. We're not reliant. Give us this day our daily bread. And then verse 12, and forgive us. Forgive us our debts. Great word. Could have said forgive us our sins, but says debts. Why? The wages of sin is death. We are in debt by our sin. As we also forgive our debtors. There's an important mark there, isn't there? That we are greatly forgiven, therefore we should be greatly forgiving. We could speak long and hard about a conditional forgiveness or an unconditional forgiveness. I think both have great merit. Blessed are the balance. You run too far in either direction, whether or not we forgive someone only, only when they repent and believe, or if we just it's just a free-for-all, hold hands and sing kumbaya. I think if you run both ways in that way, you will run towards trouble. What I mean by that is there is a view of conditional forgiveness that says, I'll only forgive when they repent, just like God only forgives me. Well, ask yourself, have you confessed every sin that God has forgiven you for? The answer is no. That kind of attitude can foster a, a bitterness. You can model what God never modeled to you. I'm not saying there aren't conditions. I'm not saying there isn't full transaction of forgiveness that can take place. There certainly is. But don't run too hard in either direction. God wants us to be a forgiving people, not harboring bitterness, but also seeking the proper ways of restoration in relationship. Make sense? And then next, Jesus says, and do not lead us into temptation. Could have said, don't lead us into all sorts of things, but temptation. Temptation here is just very wide in its scope, all-encompassing. But deliver us from evil. Literally in the Greek, better to understand this as the evil one. The evil one, Satan. You know, I think Satan's having a field day at the moment. Up and down this nation, church is dividing. Why? Because the world only has divisive tools. Critical race theory, intersectionality, biomedical tyranny, all three tools ripping churches apart from top to bottom. Devastating. Satan's having a field day. Then when he gets in in those cracks, he then goes to your marriages, goes to the family, goes to the individual. We can't dance with him there. We can't dance with him 
In here, we must flee the devil. Resist the devil and he will flee. How do you do that? You be innately aware that there is a spiritual warfare. That we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. But, praise God, greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. Never ever forget and be praying. Lord, help me see where the evil one is at work. And then unless you hold to the King James being the only inspired text, we will stop right there. The next thing I want us to consider is we've looked at the necessity in order to maintain communion with Christ as we live our day-to-day life. We've looked at the necessity to run to His people. We've looked at the necessity to run to His power. And now I want us to consider third, the necessity for us, if we're going to run to Jesus in our day-to-day life, is to run to His promises. Run to His promises. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5. There's a lot of promises in Scripture uh, from Christ, from God. But this is one of my favorites, and I think it's incredibly pertinent to the day in which we are now living, the moment in which we're now living. It's tucked away in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 29. This little portion is obviously words to wives and husbands concerning marriage. And then in verse 29, after exhorting husbands to love their own wives as their own bodies, in verse 28, verse 29, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it. That's just a true statement, isn't it? Sometimes we don't look after ourselves as we ought to, but that's the general principle. We brush our teeth, we groom ourselves, we wash, we eat. But look at the rest of verse 29. Just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. That's all community right there in verse 30. There's nothing isolated and singular or Zoom, or Skype, or virtual about that verse. Christ promises to nourish and cherish the church. Not the speakers, not the grass, the church, the people, the ecclesia, the assembly called out one. You and I can meet in a field. That's the church. The building is great. We praise the Lord for a building. But God doesn't promise to provide and protect for the building or the speakers. He promises to provide and protect the assembly of the saints. That's an encouragement because when you leave this assembly and you go out and work on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, 
Jesus promises to provide and protect you. I really hope that encourages your heart and soul. Because it's true. This is not like Tony Robbins' motivational talk coming from the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 5. This is truth. Means what it says, says what it means. As we walk into the worries and demands and marginalization in this world, I can hold fast to this promise. I can run to this promise. I I like that promise. I trust you do too. There's another promise. Revelation chapter 2. The one in Ephesians gives us warm affections and feelings. This one kind of gives us a kick in the backside. (laughs) You'll know what I mean in a moment. Revelation chapter 2, look at verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus. Right. The one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says this. We know who that one is, right? That's Jesus. He walks among the churches. Walks among this church. He says, I know your deeds and your toil and your perseverance and that you cannot tolerate evil men and that you Put to test those who call themselves apostles and they are not. And you found them to be false. And you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. That's a church that is faithful to doctrine. That's a church that because it's faithful to theology then possesses discernment. Because it's filled up with sound doctrine it has devotion, and therefore it perseveres. There's even endurance for Christ's sake. All sounds well. Verse 4. But I have this against you. That you have left your first Love. You remember when you first tasted of the Lord? You remember when you were so excited that the burden had been dropped off your back? You may not have a day, but you know looking back that the Lord altered your affections and your life was marked by change and you committed to following the Lord Jesus. There's a joy in sins forgiven. There's a joy in being a child of God. You remember those days when that was exciting to you? It's just a sad reality of our fallen existence that we can at times Forget that first love. 
And then other things crowd in as we marry, as we have children, as we build homes, as we renovate, as we face trial after trial, as we experience all sorts of things. But God in His grace, in verse 5, says, Therefore, remember. Just remember. No work to perform. No Hail Mary full of grace. No rosary. No aestheticism. Severe treatment of the body. No good works. No evangelical penance. Just remember. Just recall to your mind the joy of your salvation. But move beyond just recalling the joy of your salvation. That's a benefit. Move beyond the benefit to the benefactor, the one who has given you such a great salvation. The great shepherd, the Lord Jesus. We have need of endurance. The author of Hebrews chapter 12 says, fix your eyes on Jesus. And run the race with endurance. What's the motivation? Because he's the author of my faith. He's the perfecter of my faith. Therefore, Jesus says in verse 5, Remember from where you have fallen. Do an audit. Do an audit upon your life and see what you are now treasuring in light of that treasure that you found in a field that gave you so much joy. Back then. Just remember from where you've fallen. And repent. Just in case we don't think this is significant, repent. And do the deeds you did at first. When, when things weren't clouded by the world. When we weren't allowing... The media and social media, everything that bombards our minds. When we were given over to a pure and undefiled religion. Or else, Jesus says, Jesus says, or else, he ain't playing. I'm coming to you. And will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Our God is being so kind here. He gives us the ability by grace when we run to his people and run to his power in prayer. When we run to his promises. He gives us 
much grace to remember. To, to, to realign. To even recommit. We must run to this promise as well. As hard as it is. Well, in order to run to Jesus, we run to his people, we run to his power, we run to his promises. And then fourth and final, we run to his person. Matthew chapter 11 now. Look at verse 28 when we consider our Lord's person. If you said, what's Matthew's person like? It would be a long list of not good things. He can be selfish. He can be impatient. He can be self-reliant. The list goes on. But look at the person of Jesus. Verse 28. Come to me all who are weary and heavy laden. And I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Specific context is stop trying to save yourself by your own works. Come and rest fully upon my works, my living, my dying. And when you rest upon my works for you and no longer rest upon your works for you, your soul will find rest. I want to extrapolate, extend the application of this verse here to communion. This is union. No works to save. Simple trust gets the same strong savior and we are fixed in our union with Christ. I want to draw this out, if I may, to communion. We have rest in our souls when we're saved, no work to perform. And then Jesus says to the disciples over and over again, do not be troubled. Do not be troubled. John chapter 6, verse 33. In this world you will have trouble. But be courageous. Because I have overcome the world. Plumb the depths of that statement. Don't just hear it now. Plumb the depths of what that actually means. Because sometimes we can just hear that now. And then it's gone. Study that statement. 
John 16, Lord willing, we might be there in years to come. Study it for yourself. We can have rest in a salvific sense. We can also have rest for our souls in a sanctification sense as we do our day-to-day life in communion. What I mean by that is this. An unbeliever has everything to worry about. Even as they build their own little kingdom here on earth that they find safety in, they have everything to be worried about. You and I have nothing to be worried about. You say, and I'm talking to some among the congregation, not all, but sympathize with one another. You say, Matthew, but soon I might be segregated from society. I might lose my job. That's something to worry about, but not to be overwhelmed about. Because our Father takes care of His children. And only in hindsight will we be able to look back and see that our Father, hallowed be His name, holy be His name, was accomplishing His will and the rolling out of His kingdom. And we will look back and see what He was doing in these dark days. You can have rest when you come to the person of Jesus. Both for pardon and for power to live this life. John chapter 7, and then we're done. Look at verse 37. Now on the last day, the great day of the feast... Jesus stood and cried out, saying, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. For this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. When you come to Jesus, you receive the fullness of God by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. You know, we've made much of the water in our time in John. We don't need to go over that again. It needs to always be on our mind. But I want to close with these words. You don't have to turn there. Let me read them for you. If God clothes the grass in the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, how much more will he clothe you, 
you of little faith. Do not seek what you will eat and what you will drink and do not keep worrying. For all these things the nation of the world eagerly, the nations of the world eagerly seek. But your father knows that you need these But seek his kingdom. And these things will be added to you. Seek his kingdom. Run to his people. Seek his kingdom. Run to his power. Seek his kingdom. Run to his promises. Seek his kingdom. Run to his person. And then Jesus ends it all here. Luke 12. 32. Do not be Afraid, little flock. That's all we are. The sheep of his pasture. He is the great shepherd. We're his little flock. Listen to this. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. Human history testifies that when people segregate people from each other, it never goes well. Only brings about pain, only brings about turmoil and generational disaster. Human history has forgotten that at this time. But our Father gladly chooses to give us the kingdom. Let's, by God's grace, as we run to His people, run to His power, run to His promises, and run to His person, let's live for the glory of God. And let's pray. Father, we come before You and say thank You for this opportunity. Lord, thank you for this precious people. Lord, we are all just your little flock. And you rule and reign and you shepherd your church and we just want to be faithful. Lord, help us to have in our hearts and minds the depths of what it means to run to your people. Help us to grasp the enormity of what it means to have access to your power. Help us to rejoice and find comfort and be moved to run to your promises. And help us adore the person of the Lord Jesus. And all God's people said.